you know, people underestimate the risk of standing still, of going with what people expect you to do to take the safe path in your career, in yes. your life, uh, yes. because that can destroy your health. It yes. can destroy your happiness. It can destroy your ability to succeed and everything else can come tumbling down because the road that you thought was the safest one was actually the most dangerous one. You're listening to the Steady Trade Podcast, a podcast that inspires traders to make meaningful strides and pursue their passions. Your hosts are Tim Bowen, the lead trainer at Stocks to Trade Pro, Kim Ann Curtin, the Wall Street coach, and Steven Johnson, the up-and-coming trader who's always willing to learn. Together, we'll sit down with experts to talk about their process, the lessons they've learned, and discuss how all traders can level up their trading careers. Aloha, everybody. Welcome back to the Steady Trade Podcast. Today, it is Steven Johnson and me, Kim Ann Curtin, who are very fortunate to get to interview author Michelle Wooker. She is the author of a book that we both agree, Stephen and I, every trader should read called You Are What You Risk. But that's not Michelle's only book, but we're gonna tell you a little bit about her and her other book. Uh, she is an author and strategist, and she's famous for the term, the gray rhino, which speaks to obvious, probable, and impactful risks, which we're surprisingly likely, uh, but not condemned to neglect, but we do have that tendency. Uh, she's the author of four books and, of course, the bestseller, Great Rhino, How to Recognize and Act on Obvious Dangers We Ignore. Uh, China's leadership actually has used to frame and communicate its crackdown on financial risk using her book. Uh, this metaphor has moved markets, shaped financial policies, and made headlines around the world, and it's also helped to frame the ignored warnings ahead of COVID-19 pandemic. It also inspired, this is very sexy, this inspired the lyrics of the hit pandemic pop single Blue and Gray by the mega band BTS about depression as a gray rhino. Uh, and also Michelle's 2019 TED Talk has attracted over 2 million views. It's less than 10 minutes and it's absolutely worth watching. Such a great uh, succinct exp explanation of what the gray rhino is in your life. We hear so much about the black swan, but honestly, we don't hear enough about the gray rhino because they are so much more uh, common and we need to be aware of them. But Michelle is currently now the founder of Chicago-based strategy firm, Gray Rhino and Company. She draws on three decades of experience, first as a financial journalist, then a media and ran her own think tank. Uh, she's been honored as young global leader of the World Economic Forum. And now her writing has appeared in pretty much every publication that's important. And she's a sought, off, uh, sought after media commentator on the COVID pandemic. Uh, and I'm just everything you could ever need to have your business be successful. Michelle, thanks for being here. Thanks for inviting me. It's always so great to talk with you. I am a huge fan of your book. I was fortunate enough to meet Michelle recently when I featured her on my podcast, The Wall Street Coach. And I was so impressed with her and her book that I talked to Stephen about having Michelle on. And uh, Stephen, in fact, if I understand correctly, has dived quite deep into her book, which does not happen often, Michelle. So this oh. is a very <laughs> impressive moment. 
No, no. I mean, I'm not. I'm not the biggest reader. I'm not the best reader. But the analogy of the grey rhino at the start of the book kind of, kind of had me, kind of had me hooked straight away. I think the metaphor kind of had me hooked straight straight away. And also the arguments between. I didn't realize how important risk was in life, and I didn't. I didn't quite realize the balance of nature versus nature and, and how risk can kind of change based on our environment. So, so yeah, it was very interesting. And there's a great story about Aurora, an African guy called Aurora, but we'll, we'll get to that later. I'll let you lead with the questions. Great. Yeah. I'm so glad you, I'm so glad you, uh, you liked it. I learned a lot in the process too, which is, I guess, like why I start the books in the first place, because there's questions I want to figure out for myself. Well, well, that's a great place to start. What, what was it that had you begin this book? What were those questions you were asking yourself? So, well, the You Are What You Risk is, is really came out of The Gray Rhino, uh, which came out of the very early part in my career when I was writing about the Greek and the Argentinian debt crises. Um, we're, we're both very similar. You, know, you look at the numbers and you could see something really big and scary was coming. And both countries had a chance to do something about it. And Argentina ignored a very smart proposal about nine months before its collapse in 2001. And yeah, we, we saw a big disaster. It took 15 years of legal fights to, to get out of it. And then Greece in, uh, in 2011 was in a very similar state. And I looked at it and I'm like, they need to learn from Argentina. So I, I wrote a paper that got a lot of attention saying Greece needs wow. to do a preemptive restructuring instead of a crazy default. Wow. And uh, it, got a, it was one of the early arguments for a Greek debt restructuring. And uh, in 2012, uh, they actually came to an agreement with their creditors. And it was about that time when I was thinking it's been too long since my last book. And I really wanted to know what's the difference. You know, they both saw a big scary thing coming at them. One of them did the smart thing, the other one didn't. What makes the difference? And yeah. you can apply that to, to businesses, to individuals, to countries, to just about anything. And I wanted to talk about it in a way that wasn't sort of a geeky policy. You know, as a financial journalist, I wrote about you know, extremely intricate and complex, you know, sovereign debt restructuring stuff that most people's eyes would glaze, glaze over for. And, and that's not what I wanted to do. Yeah. And so that's when I came up with this idea of the gray rhino, this big scary thing coming at you with the horn and two tons and you've got a choice. Like you let yourself get trampled, you do nothing or you get out of the way, which is good. Or you take the strength of that gray rhino and you harness it, which gets you ahead of everybody else. Yeah. And uh, it's gray, actually, that actually came, came out of, it started with a joke about the black swan, but it's not derivative. The, the metaphor means something completely different. So yeah. this, this rhino came into my head when I was talking to Fred, uh, uh, an experienced, very senior uh, M&A lawyer. And so I said, like a rhino. He says, oh, you can call it a black rhino. And I went to the zoo when I was in middle school and I had a faint idea that there actually was a thing called a black rhino, but maybe there was also a white rhino. So I went to Wikipedia and that's when I realized there was another metaphor that was much better, which is that the black rhinos are actually gray. The wow. things officially called white rhinos are gray. It's like such an obvious thing, but we twist ourselves into pretzels to, to ignore the obvious thing. So the gray is, is really the, the, primary, the primary purpose of the word gray is to show how easy it is to take our eyes off of the obvious thing. Um, but it's very important to emphasize that we're not condemned to do it. You know, we've, we've got a choice. I mean, we have the elephant in the room that's there for the things that by definition, nobody does or says anything about, and that's normal, which is not okay by me. 
and you have the black swan, which is so unprobable and unimaginable that there's not a whole lot you can do other than, you know, have some good reserves and maybe, you know, invest in the author's hedge fund and, you know, what, what are you going to do? Um, it's, you know, it's, it's, and it helps you to stretch your imagination, but it didn't strike me as very, very useful other than in hindsight as, as a cop-out, which is really how most people have used it. And then you had all these armchair black swan spotters who were actually really talking about, about gray rhinos. They were things that people were talking about and coming at you. Some of them were more obvious or more probable than others, but it just seemed like there was this, this yearning for a way to talk about and understand the obvious things that were more likely to miss than we think. And we needed a framework and a way to, to deal with them. Yeah. So that's how the Gray Rhino came about. And then uh, we came out in, in the US in 2016 and in China in 2017 and was immediately a, a big bestseller in China. And when I went to China, this young young man comes up to me in Shanghai, wants a selfie and an autograph, and he said, you helped me so much with my life. And that was a big surprise because I'm a policy and finance and business strategy geek. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and, uh, and other readers started doing the same thing. They would write blogs about um, wow. you know, their, their friend dealing with, with breast cancer or you know, about job problems. They would tell me about relationships as gray rhinos or you know, their, their ill mother or you know, career choices as gray rhinos. And I just felt this, you know, this surge of interest. And I took it in a little bit more personal direction after a friend of mine, CEO of a private equity firm said, you know, all of the investments that went bad for us were things where the warning signs were there, but we didn't look because they were personal. It was the drunk driving, it was the speeding, it was the domestic violence. It was all of that stuff that boards are now paying more attention to in, in CEOs. And so I, I took a much more personal turn with this book, but intentionally drawing the connection between personal risk decisions and attitudes and the bigger culture around you, whether it's in your company or in your country or society. And looking in that, it, at a much more psychological and cultural approach to risk to why some people get out of the way of the gray rhinos and why some of them don't. So the, the two books really go together, but it, it really came out of that initial question, you know, why do some people get out of the way and other people see the strength and they use it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, just, just quickly jumping because it's interesting, like the, the thing with the stock market, the way I'd really think about it and with the audience being aspiring stock, stock market traders, the first thing I think is that there's potentially gray rhinos everywhere because when you go to the stock market, there's no place that I can think of that has more risk everywhere. But would you say the risk is more specific? Like, I'm just curious, is the risk specifically each trade that you take or is the risk an external factors that might make you make a mistake in the trade rather than just the risk of the trade itself? Is there more of a surrounding risk, would you say? And, and how can these day traders work on it or improve? Is there a framework for that? Well, I think it's all of the above. I think it really depends on your perspective. And what I think day traders and anyone can bring to this is understanding that not every one of us perceives the risks in the same way. Yeah. That the way we respond to something, like whether we even see something or not, has to do with our knowledge and our habits um, but also with things we probably never even think about, like, you know, our innate personality, 
um, what we do to compensate for that innate personality. And, and when I was writing You Are What You Risk, I discovered all sorts of weird, um, you know, environmental and neurobiological things. Like if you eat spicy food, your, your risk preferences are gonna go up for a few hours afterwards. Like whether you like spicy food or not. And so there's all sorts of stereotypes about people who eat spicy food being risk takers and there's actually something to that. Or like the fragrance in the air, you know, some yes. of them will make you more risk taking and other ones will make you a little more conservative or, you know, the temperature in the room, but it's, it's not even like the exact temperature, it's how you respond to that. I mean, yeah. Some people hate it when they're cold and other people hate it when it's hot. So, you know, making sure that you're in an environment where you're comfortable and you're not stressed physically or emotionally. Uh, so all these things to pay attention to when you're taking decisions, um, but also how, you know, there are things about particular trades that, that might set your alarm bells ringing and not somebody else's. And yes. so once you're aware of all these, these, you know, sort of underground influences that we don't think about, you can actually make better decisions if you create habits and systems and counterbalances to help you to make better decisions. Yeah. Let's also talk about the collective. Listen, Stephen, did you see that part where if the group you're with is taking more risk, you will also begin to take more risk because yeah. of the influence of the tribe. Talk a little bit about that, Michelle. Well, social scientists have a term called risky shift. Uh, which is that when you're in a group, actually the group is likely as a whole to take either much riskier or much more conservative decisions than you know, each individual, you know, if you added those up. And, and from what I see, it's often much towards the, the greater risk side. And to me, a lot of that comes from something I talk about in The Gray Rhino, which is a you know, groupthink and confirmation bias. Uh, and that's when you're in a group of people who are very similar, uh, people tend to follow what the first person said. And every person who repeats or reinforces that makes it even harder for anyone to come up with an alternative point of view. There's, there's social pressure to all you know, say and think and do the same thing, uh, which is why you hear so much about uh, the importance of diverse voices around the table that you want to really be taking into account other possibilities instead of you know, just being a lemming going over a cliff. And what's interesting too about this is that it's, it's different uh, in, you know, in different cultures, in different communities, in, in different groups. I mean, it's, it's, it'll be different in a group that's got a diverse set of people in it from the way it would be in a group where everybody went to school together and you know, hangs out together all the time and comes from the same place. So there's, there's actually a risk reduction uh, factor that comes from listening to more than one source of information and taking it seriously, having structured debate, and it really you know, weighing information instead of just going with this sort of emotional peer pressure decision. And men and women, let's talk a little bit about that, the differences and the, the mis the misnomers that I myself was under before reading your book. It's oh, I love that that question because it's 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 just been fascinating to me. You you will hear things about women, you'll hear them about millennials. They're like, oh, they're so risk averse. But I actually avoid the term risk averse because first of all, it's often applied completely wrong. 
And it often is applied in a sort of pejorative, negative way. Yeah. And or a scolding way, even. And the definition of risk averse is that um, that you you take less risk, all other things being equal. Mm. And the problem is all other things are often not equal. Uh, there are situations where uh, women are either punished more than men if they make a mistake in a, in a gender atypical position. Like if they're a, a police chief and make a bad decision, you know, they're more likely to get fired than a man who made the same mistake in the same position or in, uh, you know, board or other group situations. Uh, I hear a lot about women uh, it, it needing a lot more effort to actually speak up because a lot of times people will speak over women and don't want to hear them. So it actually takes a lot more courage and a lot more experience risk taking to speak up. So there's certain ways in which uh, women build up that risk muscle better. Uh, you may have heard this term uh, heat heating, uh, which is where a woman says something that's brilliant and nobody pays attention. And three minutes later, a guy says the same thing. And everyone's like, oh, um, not, not only have I heard of it, I've lived it, experienced it, and and I'm very. I actually learned the term from a man, a friend of mine, a, an expert in risk, uh, who is very much an ally and who you know stands up against that. Um, but but you know there are ways in which women also will face uh, quantifiably different risk. I mean, if I'm walking down a dark alley at 3 a.m., I'm five three and a half, and you know a six foot three tall guy weighing 200 something odd pounds walks down that same street. It is not the same risk. Yeah. And there's a lot to be said for, for knowledge and experience. Like the more experience that you have taking risks, the better you are at it so that the smarter decisions you will make and the better choices that, uh, that you will make. And there's a lot of research. Uh, Julie Nelson, uh, who's an economist at University of Boston, has done some really interesting research, looked at all of these studies over years saying, oh, women are risk averse. And she said, in a lot of cases, um, the statistical significance was slim to none. So they kind of, you know, pulled out and made a big headline out of something that wasn't really true. And she also said that a lot of those looked at averages. But when you look at the range of risk attitudes, she found a 95% overlap between men and women. So not that different. And uh, it, you know, it's very, very interesting uh, to see that we act on those stereotypes in, yes. in venture capital. You know, that, that a lot of times women don't get money because the venture capitalists think that they're not going to take big enough risks. When studies show that that's, that's not true, that women startup founders are likely to do better. And uh, you know, financial advisors will tell women different things. So. Yes. Um, it's, and, it's and we'll really believe different things about ourselves. You know, I, I think one of the things that really was profound for me with reading your book is when I started my business 14 years ago, I walked away from an incredible salary in finance and really experienced from those around me who probably were not entrepreneurial mindset that that was a huge risk. And all of this time, I have kind of saw myself as, well, I must be a risk taker or I am somebody who isn't responsible in some way because I decided to take this huge risk. And when I was reading your book, I really got that 
it wasn't so much that I was irresponsibly risky, but that there really was uh, this place of choice involved. It, it was a paradigm shift, Michelle, reading that part in your book. I'm so happy to hear that. And, and I hope that the, you know, some of your audience you know, learns you know, to think about things differently the same way. I, similarly, I was, you know, I was uh, in, a, in a financial journalism job. I was uh, you know, running a, a bureau and, um, and the, uh, the magazine I was running ended up getting, getting closed uh, down. And so when that happened, I was getting all of these very, very high salary job offers from organizations. And I sat and I looked and I was just like, the, the risk of tying myself to an organization for my identity, because that's a lot of what it is, and for my professional, professional future, I said, you know, I'd rather go back to, uh, you know, I'd been a, a freelance writer for a while before that. I said, I really want to go back and have a set of different clients who I can choose for myself and, you know, really do things that I care about doing. And it's, it's apparent. And I said that that diversification of sources of income is really important. And I actually cite research in the book um, about the, the future of work and the number increasing percentage of of people who are working for themselves or you know in, in smaller companies, and a lot of them think the same thing. They said we want diverse sources of income because that is less risky than tying yourself to a company that you know is not going to be loyal to you or is is going to go under. And uh, yeah, don't you think that applies, Stephen, to the to our audience? Like a lot of day traders are when they're deciding to do this or deciding to even create it as a side hustle in the beginning, I think they're being uh, you know, demonized and told, oh, this is so risky, this is gambling. And I feel like a lot of what's spoken to in this book reframes our concept of choices through, you know, again, we have to know our risk profile, but do you know what I mean, Stephen? Yeah, no, what I mean, think? What, I, what I took from it is every situation is totally unique and everything's circumstantial. So for example, for Aurora, the medical student who, who came from the immigrant family, who decided to quit medical school to be a, a stand-up comic. <laughs> Before reading that book, I would say that guy is mental. Yeah, he's crazy. He's absolutely nuts. But when you look at his decision in the context of his circumstances and his family and his back and, and the fact that he had financial stability and he had a good care and family, in the, and also the, the context of, of how and where he grew up and, and, and how his parents' frame of mind were and how they kind of educated him to say, like, you don't have to, to have this kind of life if you don't want it. You should ultimately do what... The, the message was a brilliant message. The ultimate message was, if you do what makes you happy, ultimately you'll become a good enough expert that you'll make enough money at it in the end. And that, that was really heartwarming and touching. So that's what I really took out of the book. It was the fact that if you love what you're doing, that, that should eliminate a lot of the risk because you'll have the passion to see it through. Now, you've got to do it sensibly. I mean, and it's all circumstantial and based on context. If you've got no money and you've got three kids, do not quit your job and go into day trading because it's <laughs> super risky for you. It's probably going to go wrong. <laughs> do, you know, do you know what I mean? It's probably going to go wrong. But it's all, it's all, it's what I got from the book is it's very circumstantial. It's very contextual and it's different for each person. So you can't label one person with one, one brush. It's true. And, you know, I, I love that you, you, you tapped into that, that whole context of things uh, because I talk a lot about risk portfolios, like, you know, across your life, there are health risks, there are career risks, there are financial risks, there's, you know, relationship risks. 
Uh, there are all sorts of different sets of things. And what you want to do is kind of balance out uh, your risks across that portfolio. I mean, for me, a lot of my early decisions were prioritizing my health after having not prioritized it uh, for yeah. a long time. When I finally had this aha moment, like you need to put your health first and your health is not going to be good unless you're doing something that you feel good about. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the, the story of, um, that, uh, that you were just referring to, you know, he had a, a family uh, and, you know, a set of relationships and supportive people and mentors who in that part of his life had a lot of stability and, and low risk. And that allowed him to take a, a different kind of risk. And, and I think people uh, like him and certainly like me earlier on in my career underappreciate the risk that comes from staying still and doing what other people expect you to do. Wow, uh, can you say that again? <laughs> that was it's, so powerful. It, you know, people underestimate the risk of standing still, of going with what people expect you to do to take the safe path in your career, in yes. your life, uh, yes. because that can destroy your health. It yes. can destroy your happiness. It can destroy your ability to succeed. And everything else can come tumbling down because the road that you thought was the safest one was actually the most dangerous one. Wow, that is so powerful, especially as a coach, because I will hear people who have, they come to coaching when that's happened, when that's about to happen, when they've had the heart attacks or the wife who divorces them or the kids that don't talk to them anymore, whatever. It's like, that is so powerful. And that I think too, it, those people probably thought they were not taking risk 10, 20 years ago. They probably thought they were doing what was the least risky. And yet in the end, that, that's, that's a huge, you know, screws with your mind. I thought I was doing the least risky thing when in actuality, it was the most risky thing. That's just, whew. Yeah. Yeah, well, I remember when I was in college, I had friends who they, they'd go to Europe for the summer you know, without a plan. They go, they you know, be a bartender for the summer and things like that. And I was so jealous of them because I always had my you know five year plan, my ten year plan. I was like, you know, this is how things are going to go. And I really was was just so jealous of people who could just dive into an uncertain situation and and thrive like that. Or you know, for many years, I used to only travel to countries where I knew a decent amount of the language which meant I spent a lot of time studying languages um, and was just in awe of people who would go to a country where they didn't speak the language and, you know, would get along. Um, and it was interesting once, once I sort of achieved my, you know, my plan of writing my first book before I was 30 and, you know, becoming successful in writing about finance and stuff, I say at that point, and then I went, uh-oh, I don't have another, another 10-year plan. What, what, what am I going to do? Yeah. And, and that became an opportunity to, you know, to, to dive into situations where, where there was a lot more uh, uncertainty. And in hindsight, I, I look back and I see some of the decisions I made as, as having been risky you know, by other people's standards. You know, I, I finished college and I went off to live in the Dominican Republic. Um, yeah. You know, doing things that seemed to me like the clear decision that were part of my plan, but that other people might have thought were, were risky. And so in hindsight, I realized that I was taking more risks, so to speak, than 
than I had really given myself credit for. And I think that wow. prepared me to be, you know, an, an entrepreneur later on in life. But it, it's definitely how you prepare for it. And, and you, you, mm. there was a good, um, good example of how you prepare for risk in the book where you related it to a race car driver, like a race car driver racing really fast. He's less likely to make a mistake under the pressure. So is there any like kind of comparison of, of if people in finance are day traders who are always exposed to risk, is there a way to, to limit that other than just constantly being exposed in the environment? Well, it's interesting. I often describe uh, risk as being sort of like the, the Schrodinger's cat, that you know, the very act of observing it objectively changes the nature of the risk because when you're aware of it, uh, you're more likely, not always, unfortunately, but you know, you're more likely to put into put into place plans for pivoting if you need to. Um, there's a lot of research that shows the more knowledge that you have about a situation, uh, the more comfortable you you're going to be taking a risk, uh, and that becomes kind of emotional because there are some people who might actually perceive the risk more accurately, uh, even though they don't yeah. have the information because that information gives you kind of a bias and in favor of thinking that you know what you're doing and you can control it. So you've got to be a little bit careful. Um, but you know, for day traders, particularly for, for people who are just starting out, I think studying history, uh, the history of booms and, yeah. um, and crashes is really instrumental. Um, Charles Kindleberger is someone whose work has really influenced me uh, over the years. His book, uh, uh, Manias, Panics and Financial Crises, who talks about these uh, volatility cycles or uh, Michael Pattis, uh, his book, uh, The Vol Volatility Machine, um, which is, wow, like 20 something years old now. Um, but first of all, you know, to be aware of how important central bank policy is to what's going on. Uh, when I finished graduate school, I started out uh, as a writer for Dow Jones. We were writing about all the restructured debt from the 1980s. And it was just, you know, people were just piling, uh, piling that stuff on. And I would be interviewing these, you know, 25 year old guys who didn't speak Spanish, but who I was supposed to ask what they thought about the, you know, political and social and economic conditions in these countries who are actually, you know, didn't speak Spanish and like knew the finance minister personally. And so there was, there was a lot of um, bravado and there were also a lot of people who would come up with these arguments as to why this was just gonna keep going up forever. And I, I see a lot of similarities to what's going on today. I also hear a lot about the democratization of finance. And, and I do very much believe in financial inclusion, that a much broader set of people uh, should have access to, to the benefits of rising markets. Um, but I also look back at the last time I heard a lot about democratization of finance, which was uh, in 2000, not too long before the, um, the dot-com crash. And all my journalist friends were, were getting hired away from one financial site to another. And I remember one of them went to a site whose mission was the democratization of finance in Latin America. And, um, you know, a little understanding of what happened in, uh, in 2000 uh, shows yeah. how dangerous that, that was. And I also uh, have, have seen some research showing that uh, a surge in retail investment happens right before a crash. I look back at say like the you know, mortgage-backed securities as sort of the you know 2007-8 crisis that there have been a, a huge insecuritization in asset-backed securities during the beginning of the 2000s and that basically spread the risk among a lot more people a lot more smaller people and so like the big guys had been you know 
chopping up the risk and spreading it out. And so when things when things went bad, the big guys got bailed out by the government and the you know the little guys didn't. So I think it's it's important to be aware of the risks and go back to that that risk portfolio uh, across your life, but also in your finances model. A friend of mine told me recently about a, a 25 year old woman who had like you know fifty thousand dollars in savings, and she put half of it into GameStop, and my heart almost stopped. <laughs> I call it heart stop trade. Um, you know that the, the um, there's this sort of feeling of masters of the universe. We can do anything at, while the, while prices are going up. Uh, that's there, and you want to write as much of it, uh, write as much up as you can. Uh, there's that sort of FOMO feeling if you don't, but also realize that you should also have a, a set of more stable uh, investments and uh, in parts of your life that really make sure that uh, that if you're taking on big risks, which you know day trading is, make sure you've got the safety net and the backstop for when things go wrong, because there will be a when. Uh, it's it's not an if. I mean, you 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 understand financial history enough, and you and you see that. So and, and don't get me wrong, I'm not saying don't day trade, um, but an awareness of the risk and the kinds of things that you can do to protect yourself uh, are just hugely important. Yeah, no, just just to end on that, it it's funny because there's some there's some famous quotes uh, as well, but um, the most dangerous time to invest is when everyone's investing at the peak of a bull market, when prices keep on going higher and natural, more of the safest time to invest is, is after it's crashed and everyone thinks it's dangerous. So it's, it's quite funny how that works out, but, but no one follows it. Yeah, and I think what you, what you wanna do is, you know, look at, look at some of the contrarian indicators. I mean, if you're mm -hmm. seeing this, you know, extreme greed, then maybe yeah. you wanna be a little bit more cautious. You know, look at uh, look at margin debt. You know, how many people are are borrowing to buy shares? Look at short interest. You know, how many people are you know borrowing shares, hoping to uh, you know, <laughs> sell them short and make a bunch, much a bundle a bundle of money that way? Um, you know, be be really careful about it. And I think also one of the things I learned early on in my career in finance was that uh, you know, good economic news often is bad for the financial markets because uh, mm -hmm. people are looking so closely at interest rates and what the central bank is gonna do. And you see right now a lot of concern over, over inflation uh, and over when the Fed is going to start raising rates. Mm -hmm. um, and even you know, before that to you know, stop buying financial assets, which you know, it's, it's still doing. And it's, it's sending out the messages like, no guys, keep, you know, keep going. Um, but people don't have a lot of, of confidence that that's going to go on forever because at some point that additional liquidity uh, is, it's not going to have the economic benefits. You know, you get decreasing marginal returns as we say in geek land, <laughs> basically, you know, you stop getting as much bang for your buck, um, you know, the yeah. longer you do it. And at some point um, that's going to mean that companies are going to have absolutely no way of meeting these crazy inflated earnings expectations and the whole house of cards is going to come down. Scary. Uh, Not to be down or anything, but. <laughs> no, but it's, look, it's reality. I mean, this is just the reality. And it, I think it's important that 
those who listen to us, you know, consider this because it, it helps them be prepared. Like you, I, I love to phrase, gird your loins, <laughs> you know, like <laughs> be prepared. There, there's, did you have questions, Stephen? No, no. I mean, just, just to counter to what you're saying, I think with day trading, it's, I always say it is okay because we're, we're in stocks for five minutes, 10 minutes, 20 minutes. If, if the market goes bearish, you stop, you should stop trading or, or you should go short. So, and if you like, if you're going long, you should stop. And, and it, for us and, and where it's specifically in market cap, micro cap, there's just no runners. When the market goes bearish, there's just nothing to trade. So we can't just, is it preempt? We're just, we're kind of not protected, but there's less risk hmm. is investing. A good sense, like you talk about, about you know, what are the things that are going to make you step back? And mm -hmm. those could be the market conditions. I mean, I find that people look so much at what's happening in the market or in the news or the headlines, things that are outside of them. Uh, but one of the messages I hope that people will take from the book is that you need to take a look at yourself as well. Are that, you know, are you super hyped up and anxious and nervous, you know, are you getting enough exercise? How is your health where, you know, are you drinking too much caffeine? How is that going to affect what you're doing? So you should have similar, like, you know, personal uh, triggers for stepping back if you, if you need to. And, you know, it's, what's been interesting for me is, is making a shift from early in my career. I wrote, wrote about market shift from, you know, minute to minute. I, I put out a story about, uh, you know, the latest, uh, progress in the restructuring of a bond. And I would look at my screen. This was the very, very early days when you first had real-time prices on these like clunky Tellerate terminals. It was like, you know, green uh, wow. green letters and numbers. Yeah. And I would see the numbers go up like, oh, wow, I wrote that story and like a billion dollars just got created. And, wow. you know, the opposite on the other side. And there was this kind of like adrenaline rush from that. And it was, it was really interesting seeing that impact on the markets. Um, but at some point, I made a conscious decision to actually step back from day-to-day -day market stuff because that adrenaline at some point is the point where like you need more and more and more and more of yeah. it. You know, just just like quantitative easing. You know, at some point, it does not it does not help and it it hurts. Similar, yeah. similar, even before that, in my career as, as a journalist, you know, I was writing about um, you know the, the serial killer Jeffrey Dahmer and, and police news and you know crises and things. And it got to the point where I was always feeling like I needed more and more and more and had to make a conscious decision to step back because it's, it's like a sugar high. And yeah. at some point, you know, are you, are you going to day trade forever? You know, the, why are you day trading? What are you going to do with the proceeds? Are you just going to put it in and, you know, make more? Well, why, what, what are you making that money for? And, you know, what's that going to do and what's going to happen when you hit that point where the adrenaline high isn't enough anymore mm -hmm. That's important this question. is something that everyone struggles with though and um we've had other guests on we've had hedge fund guys on who i remember one hedge fund guy and he said uh he'd been in that he'd been trying to make more and more and more and more money and he'd, he'd got to the point where he was lying on his sofa depressed and he was he was listening to a, a repeated voice note of his bank balance and his phone saying um oh in your bank you've got 1.4 million and he was lying there depressing if, if only it was like 2.4 i'd be happy <laughs> and it's yeah, the story of life and it's the story of every day trader if i can just get here i'll be happy turning dove turning tough who Duff, yeah. wrote the <laughs> uh, pie side talked about that and that's when he realized wow this is i 
I have a situation. I have a situation here. And it gets even scarier. Like if you have a relationship or, or, you know, God forbid kids, you know, and you know, what sort of example are you setting? And, mm-hmm. um, you know, I talked about how important it is to understand, you know, your own relationship with, with risk and, you know, what I call your risk fingerprint, you know, the, yeah. the choices yeah. that you make and what, what goes into that, whether it's your innate personality, the experiences that you've had that make you either, you know, gun shy or trigger happy and the environment, everything around you. But it's important also to show risk empathy, to, particularly mm-hmm. if you're in a relationship. Uh, yeah, you know, talk a lot about of, that. Yeah, there are lots of situations where there's, you know, opposites attract. You know, one person yeah. is is more, let's go get them, and the other person is kind of pulling you back from the ledge. But think about how your behavior uh, affects that relationship and how your risk fingerprints either complement each other or clash. Mm-hmm. There are some examples in the book of, of people making risk decisions uh, based on the people in their lives. Uh, the, after the, the uh, Ethiopian Airlines crash, the, the 737 MAX, there's a, um, uh, an airline you know, tourism journalist who wrote about it. He was actually booked on one of those planes before it was grounded, he was booked to, to go home and he had, you know, read all the reports and interviewed people. Like I was saying, you know, knowledge, can you make you feel like you have more control, but sometimes yeah. it can be too much. But his family was flipping out. They just couldn't oh. deal with it. And oh. he said, I'm going to switch the flight to a different aircraft yeah. because yeah. I don't want to freak out the people around me. And that comes down to like when you're going to the airport, the, you know, the, the kinds of professional risks that you take, the kinds of physical risks. There are some things that you do uh, to change your risk behavior because of the people around you, because yeah. you've prioritized the risk to that relationship and to the well-being of the people who you love. And I, my guess is that for, for a lot of day traders, particularly with the adrenaline rush that we were talking about, if you don't prioritize those other things, it's it's going to come back and and bite you. Uh, you yeah. know, we. I was raised, and I'm sure a lot of other people were too, that, you know, you put the work first, you know, there wasn't day trading back then, but, you know, you put your job first, you put your day trading, you put all that stuff first and everything else, you just let slide because otherwise you're not going to be quote unquote successful. And there's so much more understanding now. And even, you know, you telling your story, you know, walking away from the, uh, you know, from the nice Wall Street salary. I think there's a lot more understanding that, that that professional success, the money in your bank account is only part of the story. And if the things outside of that that you really care about go bad, it's also gonna affect your professional success. For sure. Uh, the other thing that I was really struck by, I'm a huge fan of uh, Geert Hofstede. Am I pronouncing his name right? Uh, he has had a huge impact, especially because of the clients I've worked with over the years, coaching uh, different cultures within organizations. And that was something that I used often. I had one client who had been raised in Korea, South Korea, and uh, American, but Frenchman uh, in New York City. And this was somebody that he really wanted to promote, but felt that she wasn't confident enough. But of course, the way a woman raised in that culture shows confidence is different than the way he experienced it. So talk a little bit about the cultural impact as well, because one of the things he taught me, Hafsteed, was that culture doesn't just happen 
if you're born in a country, it happens with the parents that are raising you and their culture, regardless of where you are located when you're being raised. Absolutely. And, and there are so many stereotypes, too, about different cultures. Uh, one of my points is that sometimes people, uh, people will apply stereotypes to you know, the decisions they make about whether they're going to promote someone or not or invest in someone. And that, that sometimes we'll, apply, we'll internalize those. There are times when uh, a woman might be actually much more comfortable with risk, but is expected to step back. So, you know, might actually behave in a way that's expected of her rather than what feels right. Uh, and that's very dangerous. Uh, I was fascinated by the differences among countries in their risk responses. And part of it came from the reaction to the gray rhino. Uh, when it came out in China, it was just, you know, boom, bestseller right away, very influential. Um, and, you know, people really know what's, what's going on there. Uh, and then in the United States, people kept saying, oh, you know, black swan is the thing, it's the black swan. And, you know, I got a lot of pushback here and a lot of defensiveness when I said, hey, we're not paying attention to obvious things. Whereas they totally got it in Asia. They said, you gave us a way to talk about what we were worried about in the first place. And uh, I found that there are lots of stereotypes about other cultures. I cite some of the research on, you know, Chinese versus American students who were asked to make some financial decisions. You know, whether you would rather get you know, 4% definitely or something that varies between zero percent and eight percent the second of which is is you know more risky and they both thought that the americans would be more you know risky wow. and the preferences actually came out very similarly and everybody was surprised by that so the researchers went back and asked okay how risky do you actually see this you know this yeah. you know yeah. how risky do you see each one of these things and what was very interesting actually was um, that the Asians saw the same decision as being less risky. So they technically were taking less risk wow. than the Americans were. And so it's, you know, it's like a fun house, a room of fun house yeah, mirrors. Yeah, yeah. You, you don't see risk the same way. And uh, there's a lot of research I talk about in the book uh, comparing collectivist versus individualist cultures and this sort of, you know, individual to risky shift in, in groups, that phenomenon is different. The gender stereotyping is different, you know, depending on the underlying culture. They, you know, compared, you know, Koreans more collectivist with Australians, more, you know, individualist. And it was absolutely fascinating to see that, that a lot of the things that we think about other cultures are not true, particularly in the situation. Another thing I found is that um, a Lloyd's Register Foundation has been doing a, a, a world uh, risk poll, uh, looking at how, how much of a certain risk a country experiences versus how much they worry about it. Oh, interesting. That's all over the place, you know, very, very different. I just did an interview with a Korean newspaper uh, where they looked at it. I said, wow, Koreans are, you know, very big on, on the, the worry uh, side. Um, wow. And uh, you know, that's very interesting. There's another thing that the Ipsos does, uh, looks around the world at, you know, the, they calculate the empirical probabilities of, you know, that you'll die by gunshot or all sorts of other things, that there is some sort of, you know, history that you can compare to and create a you know, ballpark estimate of probabilities. And a different, and then they, they surveyed people in these countries and asked them 
okay, what do you think the chances are of this happening? And then they compared it. Um, they, they call it the, their misperceptions index. And that also was all over the place. And often the countries that were more confident um, in their responses were actually the most wrong, which wow. goes back to the you know, psychology of your own reaction. You know, yeah. The more confident you, you think you are, the more you probably need a pulse check uh, because there's a, there's a correlation between overconfidence and bad risk-taking. Wow. That's, that's a pretty powerful last sentence. What, yeah, what no, do you, yeah, don't you think? No, just, just, like... just to add to that, I mean, uh, traders take the biggest losses on the hottest streaks. Um, you get more and more confident, more and more confident. It's all going well, it's all going well. There's some sort of distortion field that goes out of control and then you'll just take a crazy loss and look back and think, how on earth did I get here? So, yeah. It's true. Well, there's there's some research also showing that the more you see is in it for you, the less risky something will appear to you. And so you need to correct for that. The, 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 the more you see is in it for you, the, the more you see you is in it for you. The, the more benefit you see. Okay. The, you know, the more you see yourself benefiting from uh, a particular uh, decision, uh, uh, the less risky you're going to perceive it to be. Yeah. Wow. And of course, you know, there are two so aspects to risk. There's one, there's the, you know, how you perceive it and how much you're willing to take on. And, and, you know, I think that confidence also affects the, how much risk you're willing to take on. So, you know, you're seeing it as less risky and you're willing to take on more. So that creates a bigger and bigger <laughs> gap that's between definitely. reality and not. Uh, so just being aware of those biases uh, you know, in, in uh, super forecasting, um, there are, uh, they ask you, uh, you know, if you want to become a super forecaster, the, the early tests ask you both about your prediction for the, you know, the, the percentage probability that something is going to happen by a particular date and your confidence about it. And what I found about doing those was, it's, it's the, the Good Judgment Project, actually, is the, the name of the um, the project, uh, Philip Tetlock. Um, but the more I paid attention to how confident I was, the better my projections got. So that's another thing that you really want to, to take a, a, a pulse check on. The, you know, look at your trade, say, okay, how confident am I that this is gonna go up X percent by Y date? And then track it in hindsight. But, mm -hmm. but track your confidence level at the time you made the trade. And when you start going back and seeing that pattern, the, the gap between your confidence and whether it turned out or not, that can give you a lot of really powerful clues into yourself and the trades that you make. And if you listen to it, it can improve your trading behavior going forward. Track your confidence, that's so powerful. Yeah. I would be very curious how that's gonna unfold, Stephen track your confidence we taught you know i've advocated tracking the emotions that are going on for you to look at over time what what is what emotionally is your state but i've never considered tracking the confidence that is really really interesting you know i i'm a baby trader i'm 
just still learning. And my first treat was a treat on Mara and I made 20%. I held, a, it was a swing treat over Martin Luther King weekend. And uh, Bryce is one of the holding my hands through this trade. And he, Monday, Tuesday morning said to me, what do you want to do, Kim? You know, do you want to, uh, you, you're up 20%. Do you want to hold on to it? You know, or let go. And instantly I felt the greedy side of me, like, I want more, I want more. But I noticed that I want more. And I was like, whoo, this is not good. <laughs> I'm not neutral anymore. So I, I, you know, sold it because I thought, but I, I don't, I'm curious now though, if that was confidence, it, it maybe at first it was just that feeling of like uh, greed. It was just insatiable, a feeling of insatiability. And I thought, oh, I'm in danger now. <laughs> it, you know, being aware of that emotion is so important. You know, it's, it's like the Schrodinger's cat that, you know, Observing it actually changes things. When you're aware of your emotions, you can do things, you know, take a deep breath or go for a walk or you know, do whatever it takes to bring yourself into equilibrium. And, and actually the tracking itself can help you feel uh, very, very confident. I, so we, I talked about writing for, for Dow Jones uh, early on in my career, right after graduate school. And so I was, you know, doing this sort of intense, you know, market reporting all day long. I had a, a long commute from, uh, from Harlem to Jersey City. I was at the tail end of a relationship that probably should have ended you know, a long time earlier. And on nights and weekends, I was writing my first book. Wow. And one day I woke up and I, I started crying and I had absolutely no reason why. Now, wow. you know, having told you all this, it's probably pretty apparent to you. So, yeah. so I found this really great cognitive behavioral therapist uh, to work on stress management. And one of the things that she had me do was uh, at the beginning of every day, when I sit down at my desk, rate how stressed I feel, do that you know, a few times a day. Um, but with that say, okay, what's contributing to this? What's, you know, what are the stressors? And then track what you're doing about it. And I swear just the tracking itself made a huge, huge, huge dent in yeah. how stressed I was. And, yeah. and you know, tracking of all of this stuff uh, both gives you a sense of control uh, and knowledge. And if you apply that knowledge, uh, it can make you so much more powerful. Yeah, yeah agreed. Uh, and I think it's not even just being stressed though. I think if you're in a bad mood or a good mood as well, it's, it's just asking yourself why, why I'm in a bad mood. Because there's, there's generally there's gotta be some sort of trigger or a reason, right? Oh, a lot of the time there is. And if you close your eyes and think and go a little bit within, you'll find the reason. And if you just apply the same CBT technique, yeah, um, sure. Then you're gonna, it's gonna be powerful in the same way as well. And I think Absolutely. traders, you know, that we have in our audience, there, they are under a lot of pressure. I mean, life right now, especially up to this pandemic, or still at the, in the midst of this pandemic, has been stressful for everybody. And I feel that sometimes we have these unreasonable expectations of, you know, a lot of times what I hear some day traders say is. I have to make this work, Kim. I have to make this work. And I'm like, that energy of having that self uh, gun to your head, that's not helping you. It's not yeah. helping you. If you're feeling, I have to make this work, step back and, <laughs> and just, just, just give yourself all the space that you need because that yeah. is likely, gonna, likely to lead to a bad risk decision. 
it's going to sabotage the very thing you want to create for yourself, like come from choice. But if you're coming from have to, then you're potentially just increasing all the strikes against you that are naturally there, naturally occurring, because this is a challenging yeah. place to be. I, I, I don't know if a better question is maybe just saying, as long as I commit myself and give 100%, th there should be no reason why I would fail. I, I mean, maybe that's a better way to frame it because that's how I always thought. Because it, it took about four years to get profitable, three to four years to get profitable, and it was just like as long as I do the work, there's no way it's, it's not going to work. I'm like, it's I'm yeah. going to get it. Yeah, but, but no you have. also set yourself up to have, I think, that success because you had other revenue streams. Uh, you have to work hard. No, you have. I had a I had a good job in Dubai and advertising. I saved a bunch of money. Like I made sure that I was. There was no danger. There was no concern. There was That's no worry it. when I left. Yeah, and I had good freelance contacts for advertising still. So, it, would would you say that that part of mitigating risk, Michelle, just those factors that Stephen created for himself, that that mitigated his risk even as he stepped into something quote unquote risky? Yeah, I think it goes back to this whole risk portfolio uh, idea that mm. you know if you've got the, the financial cushion. Uh, if you've got people around you who support you, if, if you have uh, the right education and the right skills, if you really do your homework, uh, there's mm -hmm. some research about entrepreneurs uh, who we stereotype as being, you know, risk seekers, but they actually, you know, the evidence shows that's not necessarily true. It's often that they, they do more, uh, they do more research and they also have more confidence than they are going to, that they're going yeah. to succeed. And, you know, that of course mm -hmm. comes down to your, your judgment. You know, and yeah. you might want to do a little informal survey of the people around you about how good your judgment is, <laughs> because yeah. um, you know, because it, you know, there are times you can you can be absolutely convinced you're doing the right thing, um, and that confidence is not going to save you if you just made a really bad decision from the uh, from yeah, so, the outset. So for uh, and example, it's, you know, also it's a question of of choice. You know, that, that some people have the choice to do that and. And risk mm. and choice are so closely intertwined. Mm. And, and so, you know, the trader who's saying, I have to do this, they don't feel they have a choice, but they actually do. And once mm. they step back and say, okay, you know, riskier than what, what's the choice between, that changes the dynamic of the conversation. And, you know, keeping a goal in mind and tracking your progress towards that goal. I mean, if you, it's one thing to take a few years to be profitable if you are, you know, consistently making good decisions. But if like all of your decisions are really, really, really bad, then maybe not sticking with it for three or four years is the best <laughs> idea. Of course, you run out of your runway anyway. And talk, talking about sad stories, what happened to Edson Taylor in Niagara Falls? What 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 went wrong with with him from your point of view? So, oh, this is so. This is the story that that I started. Um, the book uh, with. Um, yeah. So Annie Edson Taylor was, uh, she was 63 and uh, you know, she, she'd been you know, reasonably well off, had sort of an adventurous life, taught it all across the country in Mexico. Um, but she was, um, she was kind of, you know, she'd run out of her money and she was looking for a way to, um, you know, to, to make money quickly and honestly. And she decided that she was going to become the first person to go over Niagara Falls in a barrel. And so she did a lot of things to mitigate risk. And she also was with someone whose personality and experiences, like having had a cushion, had really primed her for risk taking. So that mm -hmm. innate personality and experiences went into it. 
And then she went and she souped up this pickle barrel to, you know, she potted it and put in things to hold on to. And she tested it. She sent her beloved cat over the falls. And there, I saw a picture of her with the cat and the barrel, which I hope was taken after she went over from what I understand the cat did survive. And, um, you know, she postponed it by a day because it was too, it was too windy. And, you know, she went over, she survived. And uh, that was great, um, but she'd planned on making this into a career, like as a speaker. And she had failed to take into account a couple of things. First of all, that um, her speaking was not nearly as dynamic or interesting as her life. I'm being very polite uh, from the accounts that I, I read. So that was just not a career option. And the other part was that when they did the media interviews, um, they'd said she was 20 years younger than she was. And the, the promoter or manager she had hired actually found a woman who was the age that she thought that she was. And they stole a pickle barrel and went touring around with that other woman. So, um, you know, poor Annie Edson Taylor, you know, sold tchotchkes and little things, but, you know, she, she didn't have this big get rich quick uh, result of her trip over the falls which was was kind of sad it is sad, but she's but she's gone down in 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 history books but the evidence of how risk she she mitigated for all this risk took this crazy you know life-threatening opportunity and yet the risk of betrayal the risk of i don't actually know how to be a good speaker is not a place she looked. So that perhaps again, that sense of the blind spots, be aware that we could be, we could be mitigating all the risk over here. And yet, is there another risk behind us out of sight that is what's gonna take us down? Yeah, and, and people are fascinated by those. And, you know, I think we'd like to believe that if something went wrong, it was something that we didn't see because mm -hmm. it's not our fault then. Yeah. But there are things that you can do to, you know, to make sure that you're better at seeing some of those things, you know, getting the, the diverse sources of, of information, you know, having your you know, personal board of directors, you know, the people around you who, you know, your yeah. financial advisor, your, your lawyer, your, your doctor, your coach, your chatty best friend, you know, the, the Aquafina yeah. character in, uh, in Crazy Rich Asians, you know, yeah. the people yeah. who will tell you the things that you don't really want to hear. And, um, you know, did she have someone in her life who would say, hey, this, yeah. this, this manager guy is a shyster. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, and maybe you should, exactly. well, I guess she didn't have anything really to speak about before that, but you know, she'd been a teacher for years. She had to have some, you know, presentation yeah. ability. Yeah. She could have just been distracted by trying to pad the pickle barrel and keep herself safe. Like that became and she did probably, a great job of that. Yeah, she did, right? But she, it's just, you gotta make sure that you have that big picture perspective of risk. We, do you have another question, Stephen, or should I like oh, bring it home? Oh, that was the last one, bring it home. Uh, okay, so uh, Michelle, we could talk to you for another hour. I find this fascinating. I'm paying attention to risk, my own risk fingerprint. Uh, for the first time in a really conscious way. So thank you for that. And uh, thank you for this conversation. I am curious what our listeners will have to say about this. Please put your comments in the bottom of our YouTube channel because we do read them. And we're always looking to make sure that we bring guests here that you like. I hope you like Michelle and her book as much as I did. And uh, we'll see you on the next Steady Trade podcast. Stephen Johnson and I say aloha for now.